When we don't pray, it tells us a lot about our theology of God. It means we don't really believe God intervenes and acts in the lives of people. But when we really do believe that, then we are driven to our knees and to our God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. If you were to assess your spiritual health, how would you rate yourself? Are you living a life of faithful obedience to God, or is your life marked by a pattern of disobedience? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of Ruth. In the Old Testament book of Ruth, you learn an important lesson about obedience to God and the results of disobedience. Naomi's sin against God brought his discipline to bear on her life. In his study today, Tom will remind you that God is sovereign over every person's life, and it's within his right to do in our lives as he chooses, including discipline for disobedience. Friend, if you're a believer, have you recognized his loving discipline in your life at times? Let's join our teacher for more on The Word Unleashed. For nearly 10 years, Naomi seems to have been perfectly happy to have stayed in Moab among idolaters and even for her sons to marry idolaters. But now that her heart is turned back to Yahweh and now that she's returning to the land of promise, she is concerned about the spiritual condition of her daughters-in-law. And so she prays for them. You know, there are remarkable and powerful lessons here about the role of prayer and providence. You know, there are people who think that if you come to believe in God's sovereignty, that it sort of makes prayer unnecessary, superfluous. The truth is exactly the opposite. When you really come to understand that God is sovereign, then it makes perfect sense to ask him to act. It's when you don't believe he's sovereign, it makes no sense to ask him to act. David Atkinson writes, Naomi's loving concern for her daughters-in-law, first of all, finds expression in prayer. As has been well said, what a man believes or does not believe about prayer is a good guide to his religious beliefs in general. What he believes about prayer is an indication of what he believes about God. More particularly, what a man does about prayer is an indication of what he believes about it. He goes on to say, prayer is, as it were, the flip side to the doctrine of providence. Prayer is the acknowledgement that we believe that God is there, God cares, God rules, and God provides. Prayer is our way of expressing our yes to the conviction that God is working his purposes out in nature, in men, and in history, end quote. When we don't pray, it tells us a lot about our theology of God. It means we don't really believe God intervenes and acts in the lives of people. But when we really do believe that, then we are driven to our knees and to our God. Now, after her farewell greeting here to her daughters-in-law and her prayer for them, notice verse 9 says, Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. 
She gives them a farewell kiss. Sensing the finality of this moment, they are all overwhelmed with emotion. The the Hebrew expression describes loud wailing and sobbing that was and still is typical in that culture. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. As they contemplate never seeing Naomi again, these two young widows resolve to return to Israel with her. They say, we will return, Naomi, but not to our own homes, but with you, to your people, to Israel. Now, we really can't be sure what motivated this commitment to return with Naomi. It may have been simply out of their love for Naomi, perhaps out of an effort to repay her kindness to them. Maybe it was out of a sense of loyalty to their now-dead husbands. But when Naomi understands their renewed resolve to go with her, she tries to convince them how completely irrational that decision really is. She wants them to see just how hopeless their situation will be if they go back with her to Bethlehem. Notice verse 11. But Naomi said, "'Return, my daughters.'" Why should you go with me? By the way, that's not a real question. Guys, you know what that's like when your wife asks you a question that's not a real question. You're not, you're not wearing that out, are you? It's not a question. It's a statement. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Again, she urges them to return to their homes, and, and she's going to advance several arguments in favor of their returning to Moab. Argument number one is, I cannot have any more children. Naomi's language here is unusual, even perhaps a bit brusque. Literally translated, she doesn't even use the word womb. She uses a different word. It's something like this. Do I have more sons in my gut? I don't have any more sons to provide you. Verse 12, return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. Again, she commands them to return home, and she gives argument number two. I'm too old to marry again. How old was Naomi at this point? Well, we can't be absolutely sure, but we can be pretty close. Think of it this way. If Naomi was around 15 years old when she was married, which in that culture was fairly typical, and around 20 when her sons were born... And if her sons were around 20 when they married, all of those things are normal assumptions in that culture. If we factor in then the 10 years they spent in Moab after the boys were married, but before any, or without children, then Naomi would have been about 50 years old at this time, maybe slightly older. She was past menopause, and in a culture where men married to have children, she likely would have been passed over for someone younger. So marriage was very unlikely for her. She says, I'm, I'm too old to marry again. Argument number three, if I could still have sons, it would be too long for you to wait. Look at verse 12. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? You see, she's painting this impossible picture. She says, all right, even if the impossible could occur, and I can be married today 
and I can get pregnant tonight, and if I could be pregnant with two children, and if both of those children were boys, even then, you two, Ruth and Oprah, would, Orpah, not Oprah. <laughs> My daughters did that to me. They were telling me a story about the misnaming of uh, Oprah. Ruth and Orpah would not want to wait for 20 years until those boys were grown. Notice, notice the end of verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. You're not going to refrain or, or literally deprive yourself from marrying for that long. Now, it's possible that in all of this discussion, Naomi is referencing the Old Testament practice of leveret marriage described in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and following. We can't be sure, but possibly. She's saying, look, I, I don't have any way to produce sons that could, that could grow up and marry you and deliver you from your widowhood. Notice that all of her arguments here have to do with her providing sons for them in some way. Why is that? Because Naomi knew that they had little to no hope of marrying into some other Jewish family if they went back to Bethlehem. Their best chance for a future, for their own homes, for their own husbands, was in Moab, not in Bethlehem. Verse 13, no, my daughters... No, my daughters, this makes no sense. This is irrational. And then she adds, for it's harder for me than for you. What does she mean? It's harder for Naomi because Ruth and Orpah had only lost their husbands and they were young and had the prospects of remarriage. Naomi, on the other hand, had lost not only her husband but also her sons. And she had no prospects of having another husband or other sons. Now, in the balance of verse 13, Naomi makes a remarkable theological statement about her circumstances. Notice what she says. For the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. Now, obviously, that expression, the hand of Yahweh, is anthropomorphic. It's, it's attributing to God who is a spirit bodily parts. God doesn't technically have hands because he's a spirit. This expression simply speaks of God's activity. God's acting. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, this expression, the hand of the Lord was against someone, occurs. But as you noted what I just said, most often when this expression occurs, it's worded like this, the hand of the Lord was against. But notice what Naomi says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That expression is used of armies going and attacking other armies. It stresses, she's stressing, that in her case, God has been especially aggressive in dealing with her. Naomi told her daughters-in-law that the hand of Yahweh was against her individually in the same way that he had acted against the nation's enemies. Now, what's going on here? Some believe that here in verse 13, and again down in verses 20 to 21, Naomi is wallowing in anger and bitterness against God for her circumstances. 
She's angry with God for what he's done, and she's sort of wallowing in this bitterness. I don't see that at all. To me, that's reading into the text here. Take Naomi at her word. Another explanation is that she is simply stating that her circumstances were an expression of God's discipline in her life, just as God's hand often went out against the nation as an expression of his discipline in the life of the nation. She's not angry. She's not bitter at God for what he's brought into her life. I think this is clear from the fact that she's returning to Israel where she'd heard the Lord had visited his people. And she prays again and again to to the Lord on behalf of her daughters-in-law. So at the end of verse 13, she's simply stating a fact. Because of her sin, she has experienced divine discipline. She's also, by the way, affirming that nothing happens by chance. Yahweh is sovereign over the lives of people, and he does in their lives as he chooses. Now, that brings us back to the flow of the story. And this doesn't have so much to do with Naomi's restoration as it does the continuing movement of the story. In response to all of this discussion, there are two possible decisions in verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. In response to Naomi's arguments, which make perfect sense, there was again this outpouring of emotion. They sobbed and they wailed in grief. And in response to her arguments, there were two distinct responses. First of all, there was the expected human response. Verse 14 says, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Now, what we've read already, we understand that Orpah loved Naomi. She was committed to Naomi. She She had evidenced a level of commitment that was extraordinary already. But it becomes clear that her mind was completely absorbed with marriage and the things of this life. And in light of that, Naomi's arguments made perfect sense to her. And so she gave Naomi a final farewell kiss, and she headed home. Don't miss the main point, though, as we'll see next week. Hers was a response of unbelief. Because notice what the writer of Ruth says. She returned. Notice verse 15. She has returned to her people and to her gods. Orpah's response is the expected human response. She's all concerned about her own life, her own future, what she wants, and the spiritual issue matters not at all. She's returning to her own land and to her own gods. But Ruth's response was the surprising response of faith. Notice verse 14, but Ruth clung to her. The Hebrew word to cling is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 to describe a husband and wife who are glued together. Describes a, a deep relationship. As Robert Hubbard writes, Ruth's gesture signaled her commitment to abandon her Moabite roots to remain with Naomi permanently. Now understand that clearly part of what's going on in Ruth's heart is her commitment out of her love for Naomi. But as we will see next week, there was much more going on in Ruth's heart than that. The response in her heart was a response of faith. 
faith in Israel's God. This is the beginning of the journey home. Now, as we conclude our time together tonight, I want to note for you three lessons that there are here for us to learn. Three lessons. First of all, there is a lesson in personal evangelism. The evidence seems to indicate that for most of the ten years that Ruth had known Naomi, Naomi's testimony for Yahweh had been not particularly good. Ruth had remained a pagan idolater through all of those years. But in the next few moments of the scene that's unfolding, Ruth will place her faith in Israel's God, apparently, at least in part, because of the testimony of Naomi. So although we always understand that salvation is a sovereign act of sovereign grace, what can we learn from Naomi's example here? I think there are several very practical guidelines for evangelism that unfold in Naomi's interaction with her daughters-in-law. And I think number one for a believer is begin by repenting of your own sin. I think the greatest impetus to Ruth's change of heart was the change in Naomi. Secondly, I would say pray for the unbelievers in your life and tell them that you pray for them. That's what she did. I'm praying for you, and here's what I'm praying. Thirdly, talk naturally with them about the true God and don't acknowledge the existence of false gods. In other words, don't change your conversation. Don't change the reality of your own commitment as you talk to lost family members and lost friends. Talk about God. He is the only God. Talk about him as though he were, just as she does. She doesn't use the generic name for God to sort of make them more comfortable. She talks about Yahweh. And she says, he is my God. Number four, show genuine concern for unbelievers and their ordinary human needs. You just see the, the genuine concern here. You know, a lot of Christians are intimidating, intimidated about talking to unbelievers. It's like, what do I talk with them about? Guess what? They're real people too. They have the same struggles and concerns you have. You can relate to them on that normal human level. They care about their families and their kids and their jobs and what's going on in the world at large. What you see here from Naomi is, is she relates to them at the level of their concern, which was the concern about husbands and a home. Number five, be God-centered, not man-centered in your interpretation of life circumstances. I love this. Did you notice in verse 6? She didn't hear that the weather had broken. She heard that God had visited his people. Interpret life and its circumstances through a God-centered grid as opposed to a man-centered one. And number six, openly share about God's work in your life, both his blessing and even his discipline. That's what she does. She says, Yahweh has visited me, and he's visited me with discipline. His hand has gone out against me because of my sin, because of our choices. Don't be afraid to share about God's work in your life, both in blessing and in trouble. Lesson number two, there's a lesson in personal repentance. 
perhaps tonight, like Naomi, you find yourself in a similar situation of a life marked in recent days or weeks or months by a pattern of disobedience. And perhaps you have even felt like, as she did, the hand of the Lord has gone out against you in divine discipline. Listen, if that's how you feel tonight, there's good news for you. You can always return home. God accepts the prodigal. He always is a prayer away, a genuine prayer of repentance away. This week I was enjoying, and you'll probably hear about it in coming weeks, maybe as we celebrate communion, Psalm 32. Turn there with me. Psalm 32. David, you know the nature of his sin. Psalm 51 was likely composed when he was repenting of his sin. Psalm 32 was likely composed later as he was looking back on the whole process and reflecting on it. And he says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there's no deceit. Oh, to be envied, he says, is the one whose act of rebellion God has forgiven, blotted from the record, whose sin is covered from the sight of God, to whom the Lord doesn't impute guilt. Then he describes his journey. He said, there was a time after I sinned when I kept silent. I didn't go back to God. I just kept silent. And it had physical effects. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. The, the hand of guilt, the hand of maybe discipline, my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. We understand that. He just waited. He remained silent in his sin. But then verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I didn't try to keep it from God. I just acknowledged it all. I just confessed it all. I said, I will confess my acts of rebellion to Yahweh, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, that is, everyone who knows you, God, pray to you just like I did when they find themselves in a place of sin. Let me offer that to you tonight. If you find yourself in a, in a pattern of unrepentant sin, there's always a way home. All you have to do before you lay your head on your pillow tonight is get alone with your God, pour out your heart before Him, and seek His genuine forgiveness. Express your willingness to turn from that sin, and He will hear. David here is teaching us God will do for you what he did for David. When you confess your transgressions to the Lord, he will forgive the guilt of your sin. It's a lesson in personal repentance. There's also, thirdly, a lesson in God as Savior. In God as Savior. You see, God is by nature a Savior. Again and again, he calls himself that. In other words, God is by nature a rescuer. Think about that. Our God delights in rescuing people from physical and from spiritual disaster. 
In this one paragraph that we're studying together, Yahweh shows himself to be the one who rescues. He rescues Israel from drought and famine and provides them with food. He rescues Naomi from her sin by bringing her to repentance and back to her people. And he will rescue Ruth from her idolatry and lostness by changing her heart in the miracle of regeneration. This is our God. This is who we worship. He is a savior, a rescuer. And wherever you find yourself, he's always a prayer way. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of a series titled Ruth. Join us next time for part five. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.